one of the things people were saying a lot, and maybe they still say this, but over the summer, they were they, there were people saying, we're in the prehistoric days of NFTs. We're in the cave art portion of NFTs. And one of the things that connected instantly in my mind was just my knowledge of these ancient lunar calendars that were scrawled onto like the leg bone of an elk. And then this caveman hunter would take that with him on hunts because they would be gone for days and weeks. And they would use these portable lunar calendars to decide when is it a bad idea to go attack this mammoth? And when are they going to be more docile? Because, mm -hmm. of course, the moon, it, it has a lot of effects on living things and ocean tides here. That was Matt Kane. I think it's fair to say the vast majority of NFT artists use off-the-shelf software to design their art. There's Procreate, Photoshop, Illustrator, After Effects, you know, all the tools out there. Matt is definitely different. Matt writes his own software. His software is, in essence, his brushes. Each painting that Matt produces consists of over 1 million unique shapes, 100 plus layers, and takes 12 plus hours of time. And he makes thousands of changes to hundreds of design variables across the user interface of his software. It's no surprise to hear Super Rare call Matt's approach to art and technology unique and refreshing. This was a really fun interview. Matt truly is just an amazing human and a one-of-a-kind artist. I hope you enjoy it. All right, Matt, thank you so much for joining me on the show. Oh, it's a pleasure, Kevin. You know, I had been... Turned on to your work by, well, just seeing you pop around here and there on dif different discords in terms of people mentioning you. And a few of my friends were like, you have to have him on the show. He's this crazy artist and he builds his own tools. And like, there's all these rumors about how your creation process and how it's so novel. And I, I just am really excited to dig into your background and everything you've done to date. Where's a good place to start? I, I kind of would love to hear about when you first got started in way back in the day in terms of your coding skills and also your art background. Oh, sure. Yeah, I can run you through the the whole story. It goes back a little over 20 years ago. I got into oil painting. I've been an artist since my whole life, uh, like most artists will tell you. But I sort of consider where I began as an artist being about 20 years ago, because this is when I begin to create the work that kind of still stands up today that I would still hold up as exa examples of my work. And there's still like a cohesion like throughout there. So there's this 20-year track record. I began with oil painting. And as I was getting into oil painting, I was learning about artists who, you know, would grind their own pigments, you know, stretch their own canvas. Some of them chop down their own trees and create you know, the lumber to make the frames. And as, as a young man, this was very inspiring me this very artisan approach uh, to making work. And so I would experiment with, I had a little mortar and pistol, and so I would I would try these things on my own. Did you ever um, chop down your own trees to make your own frames? No, I chopped down one of my father's plum trees that had died at the time, but I didn't. I had, I had thoughts of making art with it, but no, that didn't happen. It, it's funny, I've really been, for me, mentioning this kind of like how the extremes, like how can you take it to the entire process? Mm -hmm. I've been enamored by what goes on at the artisan level in Japan. I'm not sure if you're, you're familiar with or spend any time in Japan, but oftentimes mm -hmm. when you go and you visit these 
just artists that have been creating works, whether it be pottery or whether it be woodworking or you name it, they like, like to your point, they take it to the nth degree. Like, how can I touch the very source of everything? Right. <laughs> it's yes. like, it's such a beautiful process. I got to visit Japan in 2017. And just to give you an example, the pride that that entire culture takes in their yes. work. I walked into a donut shop after midnight in Tokyo, mm -hmm. and I just ordered a plain donut. And the sort of elaborate presentation of the donut, of removing the donut and, and putting it into the bag, and I can't, I couldn't even give it words because it was, it was poetry to watch yes. this. And then the presentation of it, I love that culture. Oh, you so know, and I. I love, I love Japanese wood prints. That's one of my earliest influences going back 20 years. There was one time I was in Tokyo and I was waiting, I was trying to find a taxi and this was probably a decade or so ago. And I was sitting outside and I, I watched this old Japanese man come out of his house and we were in this little like kind of pocket neighborhood. Like they have so many of these cute little neighborhoods and this uh, man comes out and he's, uh, I see him going to his mailbox and I'm like, oh, he's grabbing his mail, but he had a cloth in his hand. And I'm waiting and kind of waiting for a taxi and I look up and I'm watching this guy and he begins to just slowly polish his mailbox and like take the time to clean every little crevice and every little like the care the, the, like, uh -huh. the, like 20 minutes <laughs> of just and I'm just like that doesn't exist anywhere else that I've seen and yeah. it's just so the attention to detail and to your point about the donut story it's just there's something about that culture that I'm like I gotta live here one day I just I'm yeah. so drawn to that I've thought about that myself that if there was another country that I would live in Japan is definitely up there yeah Cool. So you were saying how to, so you've taken some of these kind of this type of thinking into your own practice? Yeah. So going back, I'm, you know, I, I'm like a 20 year old punk kid. We're really 18 or 19 at that time. And I'm learning about these things uh, about artists, this artisanal practice. And I think to myself, and I'm sitting at my computer and I think to myself, if I ever get into digital art, I'm going to have to create my own software. And at the time, I don't know anything about coding. But I, it basically was the seed that was planted like deep at my core that if I ever made digital art, I would have to learn to code. I would have to build my own software. Mm. I would have, you know, I would bring this sort of artisanal framework. That's what made sense to me as far as like what I was getting into on the analog of, of, of making art. What a cool idea. Like everyone that I've ever met in this space you're the first to say this in, in terms of, well, I'd say some of the generative folks that would put themselves in that mm -hmm. camp of creating their own tools, their own tooling. But even then, oftentimes they, they rely on existing frameworks. But I would say that the easy route is just fire up Photoshop, right? Oh, like yeah. That's, that's, that's the easy route. So, so uh, that's crazy. How did you begin? <laughs> did you teach yourself how to code? Yeah. So to bring you through the story, I, I'm fortunate enough, like a year out of college, I, I went to school, I got a degree in teaching. So a year out of college, but I was always painting on the side. So I get into a gallery, I get represented by like, I go to the, like the top gallery in Chicago and I just like bring them my work and, and they, they accept me. <laughs> it was really, it was like a dream. And, and so they started to represent my oil paintings. And at the same time, I was making very elaborate, like layered resin works that were, you know, so I would pour a layer of resin, I would paint on it, then I would pour again, because my painting process is very 
process oriented of layering glazes of paint. And so I was creating these boxes that, that would be like, oh, maybe 12 by eight inches and then 11, eight inches deep. So they were very heavy, like 50 pounds. <laughs> so they started to show those as well. And, and while I'm making one of these resin boxes, I'm like doing these little dots of paint around a character. And in my mind's eye, I start to see the pattern of dots like extend out before my own hand. And so I, I get this idea that, you know, if I could program this, if I could get a computer to, pro to program the kind of patterns that I'm working with, that would be a big bonus. Because for me, I never really identified myself as an oil painter or an innovator with resin or anything. I was just an artist. And my goal as an artist is to manifest my visions, which usually have to do with color and pattern. How do I manifest my visions so that I'm bringing into the world so that other people can see what I'm seeing in my own? And so that's what that's like where I said to myself, all right, things are going really great. And I'm going to, I'm about to have my first, you know, one person show that would sell out. But I said to myself, I've got to now move to Seattle to learn how to code. I've got to get into like, I had a friend who was in the web dev business and he said, you know, I could get you a job out here. And so my plan was to go out there, learn to code so that I could create this, this software. Hmm. And I had no idea that it would, I would end up in, you know, <laughs> you know, learning to code from scratch, it was like starting out with just cutting up images as a production assistant and then getting into CSS and HTML, then into JavaScript. And then, you know, I, I eventually become a full stack developer, but what year was this? This is 2006 that I move out to okay. Seattle. And along the way I got into processing which a lot of the generative artists use mm -hmm. that was around 2008. And so I, I started to make work in that but it wasn't it, it was sort of this realization i had that if i was going to create what i really had in mind i would have to dedicate myself to years to this and at the time i don't come from money and so it's like i really need you know i'm, I'm paycheck to paycheck and that's not an option for me mm -hmm. and so it's 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 you know i'm gonna i'm gonna continue to be a web developer but then in 2013 just some things in my life, relationship broke up, these kind of things. And the opportunity came up in my mind was I could, I could go full-time as an artist. And my mm -hmm. idea was still working with like traditional materials because the whole time I had, I, I have, I'm basically living in my living room and I, cause I make my bedroom, my little art studio. And then my plan was to, you know, to, to go back to the gallery in Chicago and bring a relationship back to that. But what ends up happening is I leave Seattle, I take a train trip across Canada, and I'm on my way to visit one of my best friends. And on, on the way, like uh, days before I'm supposed to go visit her, she takes her own life. And this, oh, um, this fractured me. But it's, it's, it's that kind of fracturing where my future plans kind of dissolved. And I had to figure out okay, now what am I going, you know, what am I doing? I end up moving down to Austin, Texas, which was completely random. Had you and just said, heard good things or what, what brought you down there? I had, I had a friend from Seattle who had come back from traveling across Europe. And so I went and visited her and then I was like, you know, Austin seems great. 
you know, and I, and I have nothing going on now anywhere and I might as well take up a lease here. But then, you know, I was kind of in this very dark place with the events that just happened. And I, I started to get into this pattern of just kind of self-destructive behavior. And it was within that, that I, that I sort of, you know, gave myself a bit of a timeout. And I said, you can either, you know, continue to go down this road which is what ultimately leads to self-destruction, or you've had this idea since you were 18 that you want to build your own software and you've Mm -hmm. just spent this chapter of your life learning to code and doing everything. And clearly I have years in front of me that are going to be wasted unless I like devote myself to this project of creating Mm -hmm. a tool for self-expression for a time in the future when it's safe to express myself again. Because trying to use art as therapy, as I always did, it that didn't work for me at the time because my grief was so deep that it would make me sick to kind of process that even through art. Hmm. And so it was like in the meditation that coding brings and just completely devoting myself there to, to that's what saved me. That's how wow. this all started was I was just, I was desperate to, you know, to rescue myself and also try to think ahead that yes, there will be a time that I come through this and I will be able to express myself again. And I will then be, you know, I will be armed with this machinery that I've built. (laughs) How did you even figure out what you were going to tackle first? What was, how did you sketch out what this tool would eventually become? Yeah, that's a great, that's a great question. I was just looking back at old Instagram photos. And I found this Instagram post from March of 2014. And it's, and it said, here's my first stab at generative art. (laughs) And it's this little portrait of me. I like inserted a photo and, and then I had all of these lines intersecting and creating this elaborate, you know, drawing of me. Maybe I'll mint it as an NFT one day. I kind of want to mint the Instagram post. Maybe Instagram Hmm. will develop that i'm sure they will but but anyway just it's for me the kind of process brings about telling me what's next and so i start there just how can i make code to make an image and then it it led into well if i have draw it it just came naturally to me that if i have you know if i create a series of drawing tools and then i i structure that as a class Each drawing tool is a class. And then I have tools that are like path creation tools that Mm -hmm. can be more autonomous. And then these kind of things like can all intersect. And then it just, it just develops naturally where creating one tool gives me an idea for another tool on and on. And I end up working on it. So from 2014 until 2017, I was in full development of it. I didn't really make art with it because it wasn't safe to. So I was just completely in the development stage. But then I started, I started to make art in, in 2017. Did this tool, the way you're describing, at least in my head, when you say you're, you're creating these separate classes for, for different pieces of, of code that can go off and and do these distinct Mm -hmm. things, and then you can combine them together. That sounds very code still. Like it doesn't sound gooey at all. Like any there's, was there ever a graphical interface that you applied to this to interact with this code or oh absolutely okay yeah yeah there was this open open process or this this processing open source tool g4p 
And I've been using that ever since. There was another GUI that I was using before that, but G4P ended up, you know, being the best for me. And so do you consider these like different brushes then? Is that how you think about them? Like these are, these tools are just like, it's not the canvas itself, but it is the different uh, ways to manipulate the canvas. So the draw tools I think about as brushes, but then there's these other tools that are more pattern oriented, like I said, the path orientations. Mm -hmm. So that's where I develop like the patterns and I have so many I haven't even used in pieces that people have seen yet. That's amazing. So you have this entire toolkit that you pull from. Is this something where it is a software, it's a piece of software that you use in all of your pieces? Or is this just something where it's only on more of the kind of pieces that have generative aspects to it? Or do all of your pieces have generative aspects? They look as though they could. I just don't, I'm not familiar because like obviously some of the ones in Super Rare, I'm not sure if those are actually something that you're creating separately or is, is it all using this tool? This is a tool that I've used on everything. And essentially my process became, I would just open up a vanilla processing window, just create a sketch out of, create a tool in there. And I've just come up with, you know, a specific format that I work in, in, in terms of, you know, just how the <laughs> so that the code's all consistent and stuff. So it'll eventually, I can take what I sketch out and um, port it into my software. That's how it how it works. That's really awesome. So walk me through that first release of your first work of art that, that you actually produce under this new toolkit. It, you know, it ends up being a self-portrait. I got very ambitious to start. And so I, I, I hooked up my webcam as an image source because this, you know, my, my software works on the idea that I give it an input of images. And so I've, I break down the images beforehand so that it has stencils to work with. And, but in my first piece, I, I got ambitious and said, you know, I want to work with like live images. I have this imagination of having a model sitting in front of me. I haven't done this yet, but everything's, you know, end up in this pandemic and I, I can't bring a model in, but, but anyway, so the first piece I, I have, I just center it on myself. And then I, I use these tools to sort of arbitrarily create this portrait of myself just as a proof of concept. You know, I put some artistic thought into it, but not a whole lot. But so the cool thing about the portrait is that I was moving as the portrait was getting created. And so, so the image, it, it becomes a bit cubist in, in that I'm showing multiple sides of myself within, within, within this single image. And what was that one title and, and where did you publish that to? I didn't publish it. Oh, it's, you didn't? So th- no, okay. the first, so the first one I would have made was 2014 of March. Yeah. So way before. Way before. Off. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, I got the, the the bright idea to devote myself to digital art because there was such a profound ability to make an income from it in 2014, 2015, 2016, 2017, 2018. <laughs> yeah. You know, it, 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 I, like I said, I didn't, I was trying to save myself. I wasn't getting into digital art um, because I thought there was this, the present where there's this, huge ability to monetize it. I was purely trying to rescue myself and honor my younger self's vision. Because sometimes I really look back and I say, you know, 18 year old Matt Cain, he had, he had all the little pieces, but he had no way of manifesting them. 
And so I like to go back and kind of honor him and and shake his hand because so many of my ideas and concepts, they all emerge from there. Yeah, that's an interesting piece there that you just touched on this idea. I know that it's something that I've I've heard a lot in folks that are, are trying to go back and reconcile what had happened to them in kind of younger times. And like for me, I've, I've, you know, in in trying to evolve myself as a person, I look back at my youth and some of the things that I did and some of the things I thought, and I'm just like, I I look at it and I'm just like, oh my gosh, like here's this like confused, scared, younger version of myself. And in some sense, like when you mentioned honor, like there's something nice about being able to to go back and kind of like thank that younger self Uh for certain things and just, you know, but at the same time, it, there's pieces of that younger self that no longer suit you or serve you today. So this idea of forgiving your younger self for certain things or, you know, it's it's something that I work through as well. Yeah. We're all works in progress. And when we go back in the process, we see all these paint drips and some of them are very beautiful. And those are the ones you let shine through and you don't Mm -hmm. cover up when with the impasto, but yeah. So I'm curious, you were in this and, and when did you eventually start to feel as though this is working for me? This is something that I could eventually, you know, move on to the next stage of actually producing art. Yeah, I was very confident from the start there, the first piece. So let me just describe to you first what I actually create when I create a painting. One of my concepts from the start was I wanted to make art. If I was going to make digital art, I wanted to make a format that was more like musical, like with music, you can transform music, you can reinterpret music, you have this notation. And so I wanted to create, I didn't want to say, oh, I'm going to create a program that creates JPEGs. Mm -hmm. That's not what my goal was. My goal was I want to create paintings, which are databases, Hmm. which are going to record every single interaction I have with the software. Um, they're going to record every intention so that later on, I think there's going to be artificial intelligence that's going to be able to go through these databases and probably create an artificial intelligent form of myself that create, continues to create paintings with my software post-mortem. Wow. Um, Hold on. we got to pause that for a second. Sure. That is crazy. So <laughs> what you're saying, correct me if I'm wrong here, because I'm just trying to figure this out. Yeah. So you're saying that you wrote into the software to capture every bit of the creation process and capture it in a database, even the stuff that doesn't make it to the final cut so that it is very important. The missteps are so important because I want to capture the whole process. And and for me, for me coming, because I don't start as a generative artist, I start as a painter. Mm -hmm. And so for me, I go through the, the process of cutting my own wood, stretching my own canvas. I get very devoted to to these objects that I'm creating. So in the idea of creating digital art, it doesn't matter to me the size in megabytes, right? As far as I'm concerned, every single digital artwork is worthy of its own external hard drive. Right. Um, And and in some sense, you know, a decade from now, that's not even going to matter, right? It may seem outrageous today. If you create, Mm -hmm. you know, a terabyte of data for your creation process, people are like, that's crazy. I'm never going to put that on the blockchain. I'm never going to collect it. But in some sense, like, uh, you know, it's, it's just going to seem like nothing in the Mm -hmm. future. So we, so, oh gosh, if I collect one of your pieces, do I get that database too? I'm hoping one day that becomes, that's like my long-term vision. That would be so cool. Yeah. That's the long-term vision. 
And I hope, you know, hopefully I'm going to, I'm going to live some years longer to be able to build this out. If I did it now, it wouldn't be right, but I'm biding my time, but I do have this, this grander vision. So it wouldn't be right because you don't have an, a large enough data set and because the technologies aren't advanced enough to, to even pull it off. Is, is it a combination of those two? Part of it is me wanting to, to step through my whole process and think about the presentation of it, of what, mm -hmm. you know, what should the database look like and stuff early on when I started minting on super rare and still. I don't have the ability necessarily. Some of, some of these are a gigabyte. Wow. So I don't have the ability to, to do that right now. I'm, I'm, I'm watching and waiting. So was this something that I, you baked in from version one that you were capturing? Yeah. Wow. Um, that's crazy. What foresight you had then to think about I, how this might apply, or was it just like you thought I, I captured just in case I need it for the future? I think that idea came about while I was even a web developer. Cause like mm -hmm. I said, I got into a little bit of processing just to, to experiment with it, but it was one of, it was one of those painful things for me at that time, because it was like, I was working, making other people's dreams come true, making my clients dreams come true. And meanwhile, I did not have time for my own. And so it became painful to like, even go into that. And so I would, you know, I just stopped doing that. But I was thinking about it. I was always thinking. And so the idea, of course, is musically that the analog is if I create a database, which is the painting, let's think of it like a player piano. So I essentially have created my own format to mm -hmm. capture these paintings. And of course, the format captures it over time as well. So they can be replayed. My paintings can actually like be played through an interpreter like a player piano. And you can watch the painting get created from step one. Or what happens if in the middle of this player piano reading this sheet music, what if you pour a gallon of motor oil into its internal mechanisms? And then what sounds do those make? And so I've gotten into kind of when I replay a painting, what happens if we skew these results? And it's sad for me because I haven't had the time to to go through all my ideas yet and honor all of them. Do you ever consider, you know, I know some of the larger artists that are out there, they, some of them decide, Hey, listen, I'm going to hire a staff and, and help in kind of project direct this. And mm -hmm. is this something where it's so intimate to you that it's something it's only code that you would ever want to develop, or could you ever bring in folks to join you in this effort to make sure that you build everything that you want to build? Great question. I'm not going to say I'm never going to do that because I think that there are things that I would be able to do better if I spread them across a studio. But in this moment in my life, I've been very interested in this. We have artists who have entire studios of artisans who are creating works like Jeff Koons, for instance, or Damien Hurst, and they have this approach of hiring staff. My approach has been hiring code. Basically, so there's this very pure translation of what's internal to me to I've written the code now and I've made the paintings with the code. And these are paintings, you know, if I was making these analog, they would take me years to create just because of the, you know, the tiny little dots and everything. But because I'm using code, I'm able to say what's what I want to happen in my mind. I'm able to manifest that in an instant. You know, the limitation is is internal to me. And I like that idea. I like the challenging of the idea of the studio artist versus what can one man do alone? Eventually, maybe 
I think it would be really, you know, interesting to include more people in my process, but, but haven't gotten there yet. And, and what was the, that moment where you had heard about NFTs and thought this is something I might want to move in, into this world? Yeah. Like I said, so I was making the work, the software from 2014 till 2017. I started using it early 2017 and I start making really brilliant paintings, which are like true translations of what I was doing with oil, except better. And the frustration point was like this whole time I'm thinking, okay, now I have this relationship with this great gallery, but how do I, you know, (laughs) how do I bring this concept of databases, of painting databases into a physical gallery. And of course, there's not many galleries that, that deal with digital art at the time and even now. And so my, my, my thought process was, well, there's certificates of authenticity, but that's lame. There would be taking a USB drive and making it gold gilded and diamond encrusted, but that's lame too. And then there's making prints. And I've made prints of my work, but very few exist. And they're gorgeous. I found how how to make, I do this reverse acrylic printing where the print sandwiched against acrylic. And and so it's super glossy, super, you know, the colors are saturated. Color is very important to me. But for me, it was like the important thing about my work is that these are databases and I want to be able to like bestow ownership of the database somehow. Mm -hmm. And so in the summer of 2017, I'm reading this Quora article Someone asked, is painting dead? And so I was reading the answers and somebody starts chattering about art on blockchain, you know, and it's going to be able to bring royalties in and do all these, you know, bestow provenance and do all, all the things that we know that NFTs can do now. But at the time, this is a week before CryptoPunks even launch. And so... Hmm. I go and I Google search, you know, art on blockchain and blockchain art galleries and none exist, of course, because I was just too early. But then I'm, I watch the space develop on Twitter. I'm there a year later watching it on when all of the super rare known origin data, rareart.io, when all of all of these early art on blockchain galleries begin popping up. And, and so I, I'm just watch. I watch the space for a little bit, maybe six months because I ca- I'm coming from okay, I've shown in a a legitimate gallery, collectors have paid thousands of dollars for my oil paintings. I consider, you know, these digital paintings I'm making to be better than those, just as good, if not better. Of course, it's, you know, it's more mature, of course. So I say better, but it's really, I'm just saying it's more mature. Mm -hmm. But I don't want to necessarily go into a market where people are struggling to sell their work for $50. I don't want to tank, you know, what my previous collectors have already invested in. So I end up watching it develop much longer than other artists might have. But eventually, like by the end of 2018, I'm, you know, I had, I had shown a print of my work in a gallery in Los Angeles in 2018. So I flew out there and I was so disappointed with the presentation of it. I was just so disappointed with the scene. And I was just like, this thing that I've been watching unfold online, I just got to get in now. And so it was early 2019. I contacted Super Rare and we started. That's a, And what was your first piece that you minted? The first piece was one of the variations of the M87 black hole. That was um, number six, correct? Yeah, I think so. Mm-hmm. Very cool. 
And can you walk us through that project? I'd love to hear about your Genesis piece on Super Rare. Sure. So I believe it was, yeah, it was 2019 that the M87 black hole was photographed. This is the first time that human beings are seeing the black hole, you know? Mm -hmm. And for me as a child, I get introduced to the concept of the black hole because of that Disney movie. So finally, I discovered the Yukio Ota design for exits, and that's used across Europe and Asia and a little bit in America. And it's essentially this man who's running out this door. And that's, that's how I felt at the time. You know, and reconnecting with the black hole, the black hole is just a portal. It's a door. When I was using it symbolically as a door, so I saw this, when I found the Yukio Ota design, there was this beautiful poet poetic link between my last piece I minted being the black hole. So I'm going from that door on the old super rare contract to this is going to be the first custom contract on super rare where an, where an artist owns their own contract. And so I saw this beautiful poetic poetry there of my first pieces is one door, the black, then the last piece is a black hole, another door. And then it's entering into this notion I'm very concerned about where artists own their own contracts and artists are putting mm-hmm. a series on their own contract because a series des- deserves that amount of respect and everything. And we're finally getting to that, that stage where masses of artists, that's scalable across the board, you know, to many artists to be able to own their own contract. And this was the very first time Super Rare allowed for anyone to have their own contract, right? You yes. were the first artist to do, to mm-hmm. do that? Yeah, it was it was a tremendous honor to be the first to do that. And I pitched it to them that you guys are walking through this door of decentralization towards, you know, creating this DAO structure around your business. And And of course, you know, in the pandemic, this was another, like, thing that I'm thinking about as I'm creating the Door series is just how universally the whole world, all of humanity entered through this door where all of our habits change, all of our lives change. People are losing people and they're entering through those doors. And so I'm creating in, in June, July, August, I'm creating about a, a door a day at least. And I'm just, I'm just working through my color. I'm just working through my design. I'm just working through building new generative tools and I'm trying to return to my artistic practice. And that's what that door for me, I was wanting it to represent was, yeah, I am. I want to run out the door, but there's doors I can choose to go through as well. And how many of those did you end up minting? So far, I'm, I just, I just put up the 12th door. I'm not, I'm kind of putting them out gradually. I didn't see any reason to make this resemble a PFP project where I would have all the doors out there at once. I, you know, in, in being the first artist to have their own custom contract on super rare, I sort of wanted to model this idea of there is no cap. There is no cap to the number of doors that there's going to be. And that's important to me because it's interesting when we talk about tokenomics that, oh, there's only going to be 10,000 crypto punks. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's interesting. That's interesting. That's interesting. However, at a certain point, when artists are making series and they're capping their series, their conceptual series, they're making the art number one about the market. And the door is not about the market to me. The door is not is about, you know, re-entering artistic expression. 
And what I, you know, is a, as someone who's been an artist for over 20 years, I look back and I see how I want to revisit old tropes. I want to revisit old subjects, you know, so I don't want to cut myself off and say, there's going to be a hundred doors and that's it. I would rather communicate to, to my collectors and my potential collectors. You know what? To date, I've made, I think it might be 52 doors and I've slowed down a little, but I'm gradually going to continue this. There's no reason for me to think that I'm not, I'm not creating new doors. I'm not going to mint all of the doors I've created and there might be lapses in times. This might be, you know, a contract that that might sit dormant for years and then something strikes me and I return to it. The door has meaning for me again and I return Mm -hmm. to it. And I think it's just me having come from this world that's so focused on the market to say, this is about art again. It's interesting to think about, do you consider this something that you could bring back to life anytime you're going through a personal transition or something strikes you is like, is is it an outlet for you to express a transition? It is like it was for the black hole. It is for this too. And I think that's why I've slowed down on the doors. The doors actually led into gazers, which is, which is this lunar calendar project. Oh man, we could spend an entire podcast on gazers, (laughs) right? That is one rich, deep project. And that's certainly something I'd love to, to transition into next is talk, talk about that. Cause I was, I, like I mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, I'd heard about your work and, you know, obviously seen some of your pieces and was like, that's cool. I need to go deep at some point. And then I watched the gazers video and I was like, oh my God, this is geeky in all the right ways. It was like really, <laughs> really awesome. So yeah, whenever you're ready, I'd love to talk about gazers. Yeah. So I'll, I'll transition into that. So the doors, they led into gazers. So on one of the pieces I was, I, I created it entirely of Moiré patterns. A Moiré pattern is, is a visual illusion where you have intersecting lines going different directions. So you have a pattern of lines and, and then they go a different direction. And they can, they can induce sickness to some extent if they're done improperly or the right way, whatever your intention is. But I created one of these doors with all these Moiré patterns and I thought it was just so beautiful. And the opportunity uh, to work with art blocks had recently come up. And I thought what I would love to make is something that expresses color theory. I've always had this idea in all the years that I'm programming. Because I, you know, when I make my paintings with my software, I'm making all the design choices. I'm making all the colored choices. But I've always been interested in, can I take my understanding of color and can I write algorithms around that? And so that was one of the impetuses. There's so, it, Gazers is so rich and layered, literally and figuratively. So the impetus of creating this algorithm, and then it started with me just working with door forms and these rectangular forms. And I, you know, I wanted to create something also that would honor and reference. I've always been enamored with Mark Rothko's work, seeing his work in person when I was a young man. It was very influential, just the way he would layer color so thinly. I got into working with very thin glazes of paint and, you know, to create color also. And I like to do that in my work with layering the pixels. I like to try to create What's the digital analog to, to these really 
thin, washy layers of color, you know, and how they add up. So I wanted, I wanted to create a piece in that tradition, right? Not referencing, not trying to create an imitation of Rothko, certainly, but just to, you know, if I could make something in history that would connect, but except in the, in the digital realm. So the color algorithm, I'll, I'll speak you through a little bit. It yeah. doesn't have an intention. It, it doesn't have the approach where I'm focused on the ending of the finish. And I think a lot of NFTs with traits, they, it's like, this one's going to be blue. This one's going to be red. This one's going to use this color theme. This one's going to use that color theme. What I wanted to do in my algorithm was create a conversation about color. I wanted the algorithm to actually be a thought process to resemble my thought process on color. Because I've been observing myself using color for over 20 years and in, you know, a, a particular way where I'm seeing it in my mind's eye and then I'm riffing on that and I'm, I'm sometimes not cooperating with what I see in my mind's eye because that yields something else in my mind's eye. And so I'm in the algorithm. I want that thought process to be there. I've noticed that there's certain color relationships that can be computational and that I have a tendency towards selecting. And I just take a guess on, you know, what's the percentage basis of that, that I'm making these choices, these different kinds of choices about going to different colors, which happen to be parts of different color harmonies. I don't think personally, I don't think in terms of color, it's, it's very instinctual for me, but mm. I, for this, I could create these computational ways of one, you know, of starting at one color and then reaching another color through a very organic thought process about color. There's a lot more be behind the scenes in terms of what you hooked it up to in terms of the lunar calendar, correct? Yes. So, so, so eventually I, I get into using, using the lunar calendar and the form of the moon. And, and I wanted to break things down in this towards simple forms. And as I was working with the doors in this, I, I, I decided that the doors began to look like people to me, the heads and shoulders of people just, and, and just the way they would get arranged randomly. They would, they were, they looked like they were having different interactions. I think in a future work I'll create, I'll, I'll actually make something from that, those forms because they were very interesting. But at a certain point I got the idea that these people should be gazing at the moon and I got, mm. uh, and I liked the metaphor of the moon. And then of course that led directly into this should be a lunar calendar. I, I know a lot of odd things. And one one of the things people were saying a lot, and maybe they still say this, but over the summer, they were they, there were people saying, "We're in the prehistoric days of NFTs. We're in the cave art portion of NFTs." And one of the things that connected instantly in my mind was just my knowledge of these ancient lunar calendars that were scrawled onto like the leg bone of an elk, and then this caveman hunter would take that with him on hunts because they would be gone for days and weeks. And they would use these portable lunar calendars to decide when is it a bad idea to go attack this mammoth? And when are they going to be more docile? Because, mm -hmm. of course, the moon, it, it has a lot of effects on living things and ocean tides here. So I, I knew about that and, and it just made sense. And it, it was so obvious to me the blockchain should have its own lunar calendar, right? And... And then I wanted to create a conceptual self-portrait. I realized that the, the Sotheby's sale 
And also I had the first artwork self, artwork NFT sell for over $100,000 in September of 2020. Those, both of those dates happened under new moons. And I thought that was really interesting. And this is one of the things I was trying to get to earlier is sometimes the process of creating the work just tells you what it wants to be. And that's what I found in gazers more than anything, anything else I'd ever created. Gazers just kept telling me what it was. It just, it was less of me cognitively trying to force it to do things or, oh, I have this idea, let's do this. It just kept telling me what it was going to be. And, and at a certain point I was like, you're a lot smarter than me, so I'm going to listen to you. <laughs> hmm. So you, in some sense, you're taking your cues from the environment and letting them flow through you into mm -hmm. this into these projects. Is that right? Yeah. And, and just the coding process, one th it, it just tells me what it wants to do next, especially conceptually. So no, so knowing that those two events, right. Happened under new moons that told me that the algorithm to calculate the lunar cycles should be based upon these origin moons, which would become 12 important dates across my artistic career. Yeah, and you know, you know, another story I had was when I when I first got gallery representation when I was twenty three. There was just I looked up in the sky that night, and it was just the biggest reddest moon I'd ever seen before. It was like this golden orange, and so so there's these memories I have of the moon, and just like I said before, going to planetariums. And then my father and I, if I'd ever stepped outside, he would step outside with me and look at the moon with me. And so there's just this sort of like through line of the moon in my life. And so mm. having these origin moons counting up from there, that that's where it kind of becomes, you know, the, the moon cycle is pretty regularly. It, it's it goes on 29.53 days. And so you just have to start at what's a known new moon and then march forward. Of course, it's not exact, right? And so it comes in waves. And I was thinking about these origin moon families and these origin moon families celebrating together these different things and having the waves happen and not going for like, I'm not a physicist, right? I'm not an astrophysicist. And so I'm an artist. And so I based the algorithm more on what would make the best conceptual self-portrait, not on what's going to be the most most exact. And of course, I couldn't write that algorithm and I didn't want to record to the blockchain work that was not my own. And so I'm curious, when someone takes a look at one of these gazers and pulls it up, the one thing that you'll notice immediately if you're browsing them on OpenSea is that the, the, the small static image does not correlate with once you click mm -hmm. into it. I mean, it does in some sense, but it's it's changed quite drastically once you click in to see the live version of it. So can you walk us through, you know, if someone was to look at one of these gazers and, and browse them, because I'll obviously link them all up in sure. the show notes. What is that? What is happening when you see when it is presented to you on the screen? What are you looking at? Yes, this is where I should have begun speaking about gazers. This is one of my first times speaking about Gazers, so you'll forgive me, I'm sure. No problem. Um, so Gazers is a living artwork. It's built up with lines that are all dealing with color theory. And the lines pulsate and they rotate at different timings. And they get instructions at midnight every night about how they're about their timings. Every single layer gets a different instruction at midnight. And 
This creates these subtle variations of color throughout the day and the way the lines pulse and then interact with other lines behind them or in front of them. It just, it creates these subtle variations of color as we perceive it. And so it's changing. It has different modes for midnight going up to noon. Noon, it's always at its brightest. All the layers are at their brightest at noon. But midnight and the voyage to midnight, the colors, they'll resemble the lighting in the sky, right? So they get dimmer. And you say you get these instructions. Where are the instructions coming from? And do those vary from day to day, week to week, month to month, year to year? Or is it kind of something that resets itself every every cycle? Interesting. So they do vary. The more we proceed into time, the more they're going to become varied. But the way they get the instructions is simply, it's generative. It's already coded into the project. So I coded it in a way that it's creating a new, unique randomization to that particular day. Each day gets like a new, uh, it's based on the seed, the random seed from tokenization, but then it just advances. I see. So when you say it advances each day, you won't see the same day twice. Is that accurate to say? You won't see the same day twice. You will think you see the same day twice, and it's dealing with random numbers. It's it's highly improbable that the numbers will come out the same between two days dealing with as, as many as 20 layers, but it's possible. You get struck by lightning and eaten by a shark at the same time. Yeah. When you've talked to, when you've spoken with your collectors, how are they thinking about collecting these? Is it based purely on when they view them, they're drawn to them, and they say, this speaks to me, I want to own this particular one. Sometimes when collectors look at at various things, they're looking at the rarity of different attributes. One of the things that I noticed about gazers is you have, what, 30-some attributes, which is (laughs) pretty intense. Like There's a lot of different things that are are being (laughs) modified here. Is there certain traits that that people tend to be, to gravitate more towards, or how do people think about this? Yeah, there, there's different traits they're definitely gravitating towards. A lot of the traits are color theory traits. And w- w- I think that when you, as I was making the, the work, I kept imagining in my head, you're going to be able to take these color theory traits and use them in tandem to create interesting families. I don't know that people will ever get so sophisticated as to do this. But I wanted that to be available and I wanted to like externalize that data. Many of the traits that people are interested in is this rocket ship trait, which I get asked about and I say, I can't tell you, these things must be revealed. There's a telescope trait, which is a visualized trait. That one allows you to use your mouse to control how big the moon is. It's a, Where's it's the a, rocket ship trait? I don't see that one in here under the traits listed. Only some of them have it. Is that why? Only some of them have it. It's, I, I think okay. only nine of them have the rocket ship. And so there's that's interesting. So at some point, that trait may make an appearance. Yes. The reflect trait is interesting. And, and one of the most essential things to, to the Gazers project is that every new moon, a new moon design is created. And so the way that we enjoy our Gazers going from month to month, it evolves and it changes. And depending on, this is one of the reasons you have those color theory rules, is because the color theory rules in some way will tell you how strict 
is this gazer's color theory rules. You know, how close, how varied are these, you know, moons in the future going to become? And the reflect trait, which has this little, you know, thought bubble. So the idea of the reflect trait is, of course, the moon reflects the sunlight at us. And as we look at the moon, we reflect back in our own memories. Some of us, I do. And so the, the reflect allows you to, to look back on previous moons. It has a memory of previous moons. And so hmm. over time, the reflect trait is cool because with each new moon, you're basically getting a new experience that you can go back to. So it's adding experiential, whether the oh, market values experience you know, as an artist, I'm very interested in that. I don't know. I don't know if it does, if it will, but I'm, I, I, you know, it's, it's one of the things I'm playing with here. It seems like there's a lot of hidden, is, is there a lot of hidden secrets in this the particular one? Like I see one with a little artist and like a gift box. What, what is that? Yeah, we don't know yet. Yazers reveals <laughs> things. <laughs> I love it. I, I I think I, the best place I've found so far to browse all the attributes is probably directly on the Artblocks website. Yeah, I think so. Oh, I see. You have a little male artist with a gift box and a little female artist with a gift box. Mm -hmm. Very cool. Interesting. I might have to do some more collecting too. Yeah. <laughs> and then there's clocks. The clocks, they tell time, the, the, the time of the day. And you can use the zero key on your keyboard to, to flip between the lunar calendar and the clock feature. But the clock's all in the default is the clock. And it has, it'll, it, there's a minute timer, there's a 24 hour timer, there's one that has an hour hand and minute hand. The one I really, you know, which is my favorite, is the ones that have the hour, the minute, and the second. Those are the most abstract. It's very cool. Well, I'd love to hear, it sounds like you still got doors open, obviously, to use whenever you like. What's next for you? Do you have any big projects in the works? Are you going to be doing more one-of-ones? Like, what are, you, what are you thinking? So, the doors led into gazers, and gazers became, how long did I work on that? Like, 12 hours a day, 12, 16 hours a day, with four months. And so... Essentially, I think I'm going to be looking towards the doors to bring me back into my artistic practice again, mm -hmm. right? I'm all, I've also started another generative project. It's, I, it's, it, it might become even more ambitious than Gazer's and my timeline on it, there is no timeline. And I'm going to let the process dictate what the works becomes. I have, sorry to be so vague, you know, this is oh, where I'm the crazy mystery artist. You're not ready to talk about it, it's but, totally fine. But, it, but uh, it's fun to hear hints about what you're going to be working on. That's great. Yeah, there's, there will definitely be another generative work where I'm, I'm putting the code on the blockchain, but it's going, I'm going to really take my time with it. That's great. Last question before we wrap up, I don't want to take up too much of your time. I'm curious, are there other artists? And this is always a hard question to ask because people are like, oh, there's too many to mention, but are there other artists that you look at and you either actively collect or that you really look up to or are folks that you think others should check out? Yeah, from my class when I started, Sarah Zucker has become a really uh, close friend to me, and yeah. I, I, I adore her work. And oh, and she's also just a riot, like so, oh, so much yeah. fun. I mm -hmm. mean, just like hilarious and great personality. Yeah, so for sure, you know, and I've I've touted her so many times in the past. But then the artists that I've been collecting recently, there's uh, Panterzita. And it might be Cheetah, but she's an artist from Argentina and she's been 
creating a series on super rare, the shadow of the cliche, and she's dealing with cliches in crypto art and kind of feeding mm. them back to us. So she's got a piece about the astronaut. She's got a piece about avatars and, and a, a piece about the PFPs, which I collected. And they're, she's very thoughtful about the work and she works in a bit of a surrealist style. And now she's, she's one I definitely recommend looking at. And then on the Tezos side, there's an artist, Marcelo Pinal, who is, who he also goes by, uh, cyber mystic. And he creates these brilliant, they're 3d rendered, but they're very flat and they're like drawings. They're extremely colorful. It's like an artist after my own heart. And he works a lot with mythologies and, and referencing stories of the past. And I've, I've actually collected every single one of his works from this one series on, on Hen. So. Very cool. Yeah. Those are, yeah, those are the artists that I, and of course, everybody I retweet, right? <laughs> follow yeah. me and then watch who I retweet. <laughs> Yeah, that's a that, great jumping off point. Where can people follow you? So on Twitter, I'm Matt Kane Artist, M-A-T-K-A-N-E, Artist. And same with Instagram. That's my name on Instagram. Go to mattkane.com for all of my work. And then gazers.art is, I built a special website especially for gazers. And when you go shopping for new gazers, I recommend going to the market page on gazers.art because I'm actually showing what the current moon looks like. And I'm allowing mm. collectors to really quickly look at what does, what's a snapshot of how it looks at midnight? What's a snapshot of how it looks oh, at very midday cool. and then noon? And so it's, you know, this work is so different that it really, it doesn't fit in, in any traditional marketplace that we have. And so I had to kind of like cobble together my own and that's pulling in all the buy now prices for from open sea so that's the best way to go find your next gazer oh i love it i'm on the site right now i see that you can have mm -hmm. hover over the different states here and it just makes that was the one thing i was i i've already own, i already own a gazer because I, I just bought one off of open sea and I, I just did it based on what it was looking like at that point in time but i was i was really curious and i've, I've since gone back and kind of watched it on my own clock like I had to wait yeah. for those times to actually occur i didn't know this existed this is a super helpful tool great so that's gazers.art matt thank you so much for being on the show this was just fantastic to have you on you're such a legend in the space and uh i appreciate your time because i know it's valuable Oh, thanks so much, Kevin. This was a real pleasure for me to get to to speak with you. And it's nice to know we have we have a couple more things in common. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is you, you, the we'll have to do a trip to Japan at some point. That would be fun. All right, that is it for this episode. Thanks so much for tuning in. If you would like to help us out, head on over to proof.xyz and click on the reviews button at the very top and leave us a five star review. Thanks so much. Take care.